0: Welcome to Newcastle Libraries Reel. Newcastle Libraries can be accessed from wherever you live with the Newcastle Library app. Put borrowing at your fingertips. Welcome to Newcastle's first storytellers. Always was, always will be.
1: Thank you, Aunty Donna, for coming along. My name is Karindi Clark and I'm here on behalf of Libraries just to have a yarn with you about your experience growing up in Newcastle. And it's, you know, it's just an informal
2: chat. Thank you, Karindi, lovely to be here. Thank you. And uh, first, can I just acknowledge country. I'm a Gamilaroi woman born in Canaanble, brought here when I was five years old, so I've adopted Newcastle, Wabikaw Country. I'd like to say Mirumbina, Kawi Tee, Baji, Anteen, Tala Wollonarunga, Wajidjukul, Kuriguris Maris and Moolumbimba. So I said, welcome friends, come here, all of you sit down and listen as we speak the truth about Aboriginal people here in this place in Newcastle. Thank so you. good to
1: see you. So really, why Newcastle? Why is Newcastle a great place to live and work?
2: So, I was brought here, I was fostered for three years and then adopted, and then uh, married, had my children, and then went to uni. We all go back as mature age students when my youngest started school and learnt my history, my culture, and had contact with my people. So, then uh, working with the Wabakal Co op and various government departments, always in an average liaison role. So, um, that's my work history here
1: yeah and so what age was it that you come here was it your baby girl
2: I was five years old I was brought here in 1960 arrived on Bermuda railway station 22nd of April 1960 my mum had lost seven children overnight due to the assimilation policy and it was very traumatic and as a five-year-old you don't know what's happened all that confusion so That had an impact on me, Mm. Uh, plus being an only child in this house uh, with Europeans who spoke another language, so everything was, you know, I felt really displaced Mm. and isolated, and as the years went on, rejection, and then my whole search for identity and a sense of belonging, so it's been a journey
1: <laughs> it has been a journey and your story is one of sadness but also one of hope and love mm, yes um yeah and can you tell us about how you know your story has helped you but also helped others
2: yes and uh because i was placed and and i believe you know well we know god had a plan in it but if i'd been placed in a white family I don't think I would have had the same outcome because having new Australian, German, Yugoslav parents who were facing racism Mm. every day themselves, so they understood. And they wanted an Aboriginal child because they wanted to say thank you to this new country that took them in after the war. So that's how they got me. And um, so being raised by them and loved dearly, I had the best parents... Growing up in the church, you know, that was just normal for me. It wasn't Sunday if I wasn't at church. So, you know, coupled with that, and then marrying a a beautiful non Aboriginal man who supported me in everything, you know, when we do the domino effect, everything was just right. Mm -hmm. So, my story is hope. Sure, I did get to the point of wanting to suicide but my four year old son stopped me. Mm. And I thought if I do this then he has to go through life with that. His birth mother is that history repeating itself and so, you know, having being supported in a sea of love makes all the difference and, you know, I had to navigate through that. But as I said, my faith is a very integral part of who I am as an Aboriginal person, a woman, a Christian and a mother i'm a mother of three sons i have four grandchildren and i'm a widow my hubby passed 21 years ago and so i've thrown my life you know into working for my people i do prison ministry at frank baxter visiting our Aww. teenage aboriginal boys we do that once a month and we've been doing that 20 years
1: 20 years 20 years
2: so, you know, then you see them when they leave and they are grown up and they'll come up and say, look at my children, you know. Aww. It's just beautiful. Wow, oh, yeah, the whole full circle, right? Yeah, full circle, yeah.
0: Thanks for being part of our story and listening to Newcastle's First Storytellers. Always was. Always will be. Find more information about our Aboriginal history via the Newcastle Library History
1: Collection. How did you connect back to your culture Mm. and how did you find healing?
2: So, you know, being isolated and when I was 13, I went through this, you know, identity crisis. I knew I was Aboriginal, but I didn't know another Aboriginal person. Totally isolated in all the five schools I went to and the high school.
1: This was in Newcastle? Newcastle.
2: Never seeing an Aboriginal person back in the 60s society we were on the bottom of the social heap you know aboriginal people were looked down upon so i had no role models. we didn't have aboriginal education at school all we got was maybe a man in a lap lap with a spear standing on one leg and i thought well i'm not like that so i can't be aboriginal anymore we had no language so just that you know hunger and thirst to find out about my aboriginal roots By the time I was 15, I was working and I soon learned if I said I was Maori or Fijian, the customers thought that was wonderful. If you told them you were Aboriginal, Mm. you got the blank look, you know, the facial reactions and I learnt, you know, because you just want to be accepted. Mm. Then I met my husband, got married. But I'd gone to a ladies' meeting. There was one Aboriginal woman there. I was very shy in those days. I went up to her at morning tea and she said, what's your name? And I said, Donna. And she said, where you been from? And I didn't know what that meant and I just <laughs> said, oh, I live at Edgeworth. No, where have you been from? Where have you been born? I said, oh, Canamble. She said, my husband is your mother's nephew.
1: I just got shivers up my spine. I
2: know. And so if I hadn't gone to that ladies' meeting... So then they came around that night, they gave me my mum's address and I wrote to her. It took me three days because I was very nervous. I sent that letter on a Wednesday. It would have arrived in Canamble Friday but she was in Walgut and so my brother walked and he said he walked at least half the way. He couldn't get a lift that day. He was hitchhiking. She got that letter on the Saturday before Mother's Day. She said it was the best Mother's Day present. So we started writing to each other. She came to Newcastle.
1: How old were you when you. Oh, about found 27. Her. 27, yeah.
2: And so all the other brothers and sisters, you could go home when you were 15. The welfare would tell you where you're from, who's your mob, give you a train ticket back home. But Wait. there was no counselling, there was no connection. You're going home as a stranger. You've been y- taken for, yeah, you know, that's 10 it.
1: years. So 15, you were able to go back home. Yes,
2: her. yep. Okay. But I, I knew that a welfare worker at high school told me but I was mad at them because I thought they sent me away I thought they didn't want yeah. me they never come looking for me because as a five-year-old that's all you know so I had this disjointed vision of who I was and my place in society not learning any culture so connecting with my mom. three years later we drove back to Canamble met nearly all my uncles and aunties and heaps of cousins and all my siblings they'd all gone home I was the only missing one so it was the beginning of a healing journey and then we were going to start the first chapter of my book and mum Beatrice was supposed to come to Newcastle and she just died of a heart attack and so we buried her on the Saturday Seven years to the date that she got my letter, we buried her on the Saturday before Mother's Day. So then, you know, after about two months grieving, I then went to university and I only went to Wollatooka because I felt like I had to learn my culture and history because that was what the book was going to be about. My mum was going to teach me. Yeah. So I went to university.
1: So you are about 35? Yep. Yep.
2: Yep. And, you know... For the first time in my life, I had Aboriginal friends. I knew my family was in Canamble, but in Newcastle, I was totally isolated. I only had white women for the church. Mm. And so here at uni, and that's when I learnt that I was stolen generation. I didn't know. We didn't know.
1: Isn't that insane? Didn't
2: know why we were taken away. And I told my adoptive mum, and she just cried. She said, Donna, we had no idea. The welfare said, we've got thousands of these children and Mum had said, Look, we only have this little couch in the in the lounge room. We didn't have a two bedroom house. We just got this little couch where a little five year old could sleep. And the welfare men said, Oh, we don't care where they sleep, you can put them up in the rafters. We've got thousands of these children. And you know, they hadn't even been told the truth. So we've all had a journey. But um going to uni and Every assignment I did on an Indigenous perspective, because I only went, I didn't go there to get a job, I went there to learn mm. about my people and made beautiful friends and uh, then doors just opened one after another after another. Like I went for a job at a call after I graduated and on the first day Jimmy Wright said, the administrator, he had said, um, "Donna, you got the radio program, do with it what you want. And I thought I only no yeah. one black song, <laughs> Royal Telephone, <laughs> Jimmy Little. <laughs> so being given that gave me a voice to the community and they could hear my passion, the love I had for my people. Mm. And I always spoke in a positive light. I would never say negative things on radio because I knew that I probably had 90% white listeners. Yeah. So I was educating them and listening to the songs our people sang about, not just love songs but songs about land rights, about, you know, Stolen Generation. I played Archie Roach, Took the Children Away. I played that three years before his album came out. He walked up in Melbourne, Nadot Week, Walked up on stage, a buskers competition. He said, I wrote a song last night, and I cried and cried and Aww. cried. And so, it was we got these little interviews on cassette tapes from the Indigenous Broadcasting Service, and I'd played it then. So, when this album came out, I thought, gee, I know this song. So, learning the songs, what our people were singing yeah. about, and Roger Knox in the, the prisons classics, you know, he's visited nearly every prison in Australia. And so learning about that and culture and then the love songs and then, you know, the songs, themes that they use for plays like Get Up and Dance, Mm. Um, Oriel Andrews, our local singer who'd come from Alice Springs and and, she was singing in the clubs and also in the schools teaching culture and song. So all those connections through music, it it was just wonderful. And we had Yothi Yindi come to town. We were packed in 5,000 people in Newcastle Workers' Club we were like sardines. <laughs> you know, that was a highlight. We met um, Rumpy Band. They came to Newcastle. Oh, I love them. Yeah. So, you know, and Jimmy Little came to Newcastle, stayed at our house. What's your favourite song? Oh, uh, I think it is still Archie Roach. She's my, you know, Jimmy Little was my ambassador. He was... An ambassador for reconciliation uncle jimmy and now he's gone and so archie roach is my ambassador a favorite song oh there's so many he's but fantastic i love that new version that archie has brought out with the briggs brothers and chris and it's a hit like a hip-hop version and it's called The Children Came Back.
1: Yes. It's awesome. That is a great so song. I love
2: I just love that one.
1: We ain't none below. Ain't none above me. I'm the carving out of every sky. We on those flats. That's about you now. Mr. Think about me. We feel
2: the same. it mean, might sound strange, but I'm the same. We both unsettled when the boats came. I'm boom. I'm much. I'm nothing been too I'm ever, been to, I'm ever
1: been to come. I'm the dead heart, i to lots of, you know, local organisations, not just Aboriginal organisations, you know, throughout the community. Can you touch on what you are working
2: on at the moment? Right, yes. Yes. So for many, many years, you know, it didn't matter if I was at a wobbly call, I started doing talks, you know, on cultural awareness, I thought I've got to educate society. And I always spoke about our achievements, you know, and there's so many high achievers in Newcastle. And, you know, before the Queer Mail came out, and I thought, white society doesn't know that. And the media, you know, you invite them to come to positive things and they wouldn't come. So I thought, that's my job to educate society and then you know when i was in education and working for facts and then uh, health so i still i've spoken to i reckon at least 80 percent of all the churches in newcastle how Um, many is there oh (laughs) there's lots (laughs) so you know my name was out there and um so uh, that's been my passion to impact to affect racism and prejudice so I was at um, in health for nine years. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just doing some casual work now on switchboard, sometimes the front counter at John Hunter. And I think it's really important that when Aboriginal people walk in, they see a Koori face mm-hmm. right on that front desk. Yeah, makes a difference and particularly now in this climate after the Black Lives Matter marches and on my work badge I've got the Aboriginal flag and you know, all these white fellas are looking at your name and then they see the flag mm. and but I always leave them with a smile. I talk to them until they smile at me. Mm-hmm. So we're still educating, Yeah, you know. We are approachable people. Of course. And there's things that we need to work on
0: together. Yeah. Thanks for listening to Newcastle's First Storytellers always was always will be access these stories and more from newcastle library's website or app
1: and i know that your role at john hunter hospital as the aboriginal liaison officer role was massive mm. maybe just talk to the people in newcastle oh, with okay. you know how big that role is and where aboriginal people come from to this hospital i just yes
2: oh definitely thank you Crindy. When I was employed there, it it sat with social work. I was the Aboriginal liaison, hospital liaison officer and you'd print out your list every day. So we started with 45 Indigenous patients every day. And uh, by the end of the week, you may have seen, you know, maybe 45, Mm. but the numbers kept increasing each year, each year more people identified Mm. and so in the end I had 77 patients every day and you just can't do it so you know I got burnt out Mm. but you've got people coming into John Hunter because that's where the specialists are so they'd be coming from Tweed Heads, Grafton, Nambucca, Armidale, Urala, you know then you had Moree, uh, Tamworth, Uh, occasionally we had a couple of people from Lightning Ridge, wulkenya dubbo and then the hunter valley Mm. so there's a lot of aboriginal people coming in and i think it probably would be about twenty five thousand indigenous patients wow a year and so i was going home heavy because you print out your list i'd look go to the out of towners first Mm. because they've arrived overnight they don't have a comb or nighty or toothbrush you know and so I'd go to see them you go and see ICU next and then CCU coronary care unit and then you'd visit other people on wards so really unless the locals asked the nurse to page me I didn't get to see my local people so what you start to think is they might think oh she doesn't care about me she doesn't come and visit me but it's impossible mm. because the day it's a, massive,
1: it's a massive expectation yep. for one person, yep. you know.
2: And government departments do that; they employ one Aboriginal person. They think you've got the big black magic wand <laughs> and you can fix all the problems. You know, it happened in education, and then it happened at FACS. I was in the funding body which funded the Aboriginal organisations, mm. which was great. But it gets political because then if an organisation doesn't get the funding, they would think that you in Influence that but it's the minister's discretion That's right. to tick and approve which organization gets funding. So I guess with the hospital is there anything
1: that services or organisations can do, I guess, to support Aboriginal people coming in? Even Aboriginal people coming in and out of town, you just mm. you just made note that, you know, sometimes they didn't have a toothbrush or, you know, just some of the basic That's stuff. That's
2: right, all the toiletries. So they can donate, you know, nighties. And uh, a lot of our young girls don't wear nighties these days. They like the like the pyjama pants, you know, tracky suit pants, lightweight and T-shirts or that But, you know, if they want to donate pyjamas and even those toiletries, um, there are quite a few women that drop off, you know, when you go to the motels, (laughs) you take the shampoo, conditioner and soap. Correct. All those little things, they're handy for hospital. Okay. Those sorts of things would be lovely. The biggest need and it's accommodation because we only have six rooms. At uncle bob's place and then we might get four rooms from kookaburra cottage so the hospital is thinking of building a motel in the bush okay at long last but probably take another seven years but that will be good when that's done because they want to be there on site you know if a loved one turns in the middle of the night Mm. they want to be close to hospital
1: and it's been extremely hard i know that i had a cousin come from collie and i've never met this cousin before and i think she was maybe 16 and was having a baby but her partner couldn't stay with her yes so he was just gonna sleep in the car park
2: people do sleep in the car park yep And uh, so that's a huge thing, especially for a hospital that size. So we give them a list of motels around. I guess if you've got four or five people staying in that room, they can all chip in $20 and it's sort of doable and it's maybe just one or two nights. Mm -hmm. But that's the biggest issue. And look, I have had some women from church offer their homes But our mob are embarrassed to go and stay in a White House. Oh, they're even ashamed, you know, to come stay at,
1: you know, your own mob. That's right, yep.
2: And then you think about putting them out, you know, it's inconvenient. Yes, and yeah, anything like that, some donation like that would be great. You can just leave it when you walk into the front entrance of John Hunter, there's a gift shop. You can leave it with the volunteers. Beautiful. And then they'll take care of it. Awesome.
1: Now, there is a few more questions. I did want to get into talking about your story for being an author. Mm. You know, what have been some of the defining moments or opportunities Mm. as an author sharing your story?
2: Well, it took me 13 years to write it because I was just journaling, you know, and then the ending kept changing because things would happen. Like my brother died and he made me promise to write the book. You know, my mum died, my brother died. And so it was this never-ending story and opportunities came and then I finished it and um, it was just a miracle how it all came about. Uh, got published and it's been out 20 years now. I've got the next generation reading it, still selling it. So that was 19,000 print run. Wow. And then we got an ebook, an electronic book. People can read it online. Then I got an offer from Reader's Digest New Zealand and they did a 25,000 print run. Then I got an offer from France. They did a French edition and that was 10,000 print run and that was in French and it went to French-Canadia. And I think, is that all? Oh, of course, the first one was Nova Castor Tales. That was the first. I had three short stories in that and that was the springboard. They said, have you gotten more stories? I said, yes, I've got a manuscript at home. So it went... Carmel Bird picked up the story of Joyride. That's the train ride being taken away. She published that in her book, Stolen Children, Their Stories. I had another beautiful lady, Melanie, and um, she asked to have that story included. There's a DVD of Stolen Children, Their Stories, and we launched that at Parliament House. And I got to speak at Parliament House for four minutes.
1: What year was this? Must
2: have been the 4th. Anniversary of National Sorry Day. So maybe 2011.
1: Can we YouTube it?
2: I wonder if it's still there. Have a look. Okay. But um, Kevin Rudd walked me down the steps of the White Hall. <laughs> <laughs> but I shared my story and then I recited this poem and I looked out and so Peter Gareth is right in front of me and I thought, I know who that is. And I'm saying this poem about prejudice. <laughs> so that's certain. I mean, the book. Sometimes you have to be rejected 30 times before they'll take your manuscript and mine was accepted the first time. And then back in 99, 2000, we heard the words on television every night about reconciliation. Linda Burney, you know, we were pushing that with reconciliation and then Random House, they brought the, the launch forward a year and a half because it was the topic and they gave me an editor and they just pulled together the strands of stolen generation reconciliation and my you know local aboriginal achievements so look that that was such a privilege i went to 2000 the olympics in sydney and There was a store there with indigenous books and um, I sold 350 in five days. My book was selling eleven to every one of Kathy Freeman's. Wow. (laughs) And I thought I'm not even an athlete. (laughs) But But you're incredible over the world.
1: And your story is incredible. Thank you. If anyone is listening and wants to read your story,
2: what is the title? Thank you. So it's called It Is No Secret. And that was the first song my Aboriginal mum sang to me when I went back home, and uh, it's in the public library system. It is recommended reading text for Aboriginal studies U11 and 12. Um, so yeah, and I've had other stories published. So I've been published five times, and you know, in my old age, I wanted to do some children's stories, and yeah, there's been two other books um, that didn't happen which made me cry for three days, put my computer in to get repaired and they wiped the hard drive. No. And I didn't know what rights I had. I should have gone, pursued it. But there are other stories to be written. So that's why I want to do some writing. Yeah. This year I've never cried so much in all my life as this year. First with the bushfires and the loss that people had, loss of houses, and then the loss of millions of our animals. Mm. Then we had drought. Then we had flood. Then we had COVID. We had sickness and disease, images that we've never seen. And, you know, it's just been a hard year in our heart. And then we had the the death and murder of Mr. George Floyd. And, um, you know, I've just cried so much. It just broke my heart. It's been so, so heavy, uh, such
1: a heavy time, and
2: I really believe we're seeing a change now. It took that, um, so now I've got churches ringing me, and so I have to do a history lesson now—the mm. true history of this of this country.
1: I heard you speak at the march. <laughs> you're so incredible and you did you you made you made the comment that you know it took a death of a man overseas for australia to now start realizing you know That's of it. the injustice and racism that of happened of course it's here.
2: happening right here you know a lot of white people think it's overseas and look this is the way we talk folks we talk in colour yep. we talk black and white yep. but i'm being respectful um so yep yeah, the non aboriginal people would probably think oh that's over in america it doesn't happen here it's happening right here so in northern territory in Moree, the police wanted this family to move out and audrey said i'm not moving out i'm staying here this is my country you know this has happened i'll tell everybody what happened to my son we've seen it in maitland with uh, an aboriginal Pretty woman wow. dying in maitland and we we have so many stories of police bashing and kicking our people on the ground and I've had so many relatives in jail you know I've tried to add them up I stopped at 80 and that's including my uncles their cousins my four brothers my two brother-in-laws a sister um nieces nephews and a heap of cousins because in Canamble you're sort of related Mm. so if you count up all those cousins yeah and there's many reasons. There's not just one reason no. why the police, you know, and we have to give our sons the lecture, the talk that, you know, you got your peas. Now, if a police pulls you over, be very courteous. Don't give them any attitude, because that will throw you in a paddy wagon. Yeah. And so many of our people, you know, they're dying in custody, yep. even without being processed. You know, they've been waiting to go to court so there's all this injustice and
1: this is still happening in 2020 2020 right
2: it's hard to believe 2020 you know, us oldies we're saying we can't believe i thought we'd moved on from the 60s but i believe this will be the change
1: yeah and so any pearls of wisdom i guess <laughs> for any of the non-aboriginal listeners listening to this around how they can help yeah you know help change the racism in this Amen. country
2: Well, my greatest um, one of my role models was um, Dr. Martin Luther King. He was an Afro American man, he was a Baptist pastor, and he was right there, you know, saying that the churches should get involved because he, you know, they had the silent protests about apartheid in America. He got shot in the back walking into his house. You know, it's not right. You have a man wanting to do good. So his quote is that the greatest tragedy in all the world isn't the brutality of the bad, but the silence of the good. So... I believe that's what we saw at the Newcastle March. We saw the good marching. We never expected five thousand people. It just blew us away. And Uncle Ray Kelly, he leaned over at me at the march, his eyes were filled with tears. He had a mask on. He said, Don, I can't believe that all these other nationalities have come to stand with us. So we're not alone anymore. You know, we've got non Aboriginal people, we've got africans indians and a lot of good people so the first thing is to be informed it was great that they made a decision to march you know you got to move the heart before you move the head Mm -hmm. stand and be accounted you know if good people are silent nothing's going to change and so that was wrong police have got a job to do but you're not called to shoot us in the back or to kneel us and take the breath of life out of us so i said you know police need to do their job with respect so there are various different groups
1: they need to remember they're humans yes before police that's
2: right yes i love that and i think that's what incensed the world because it wasn't humanity You know, it was over and above the call of duty. And then the other three officers, bystanders. And I'm sure it was one and a half years, if not two years ago, that police have body cams. And they're supposed to have that turned on all the time. So with uh, George Floyd, none of them produced that, of course. But last week on television, they showed the public or one male being physical and violent with a policeman. But they had the body cam of that you know so that's there we need to use that and you know with skills too teaching the children I love it one young girl got up at the march she looked about seven or eight and her mother said she wants to say something so the organizers led her and this little baby girl she just said I just wish that everybody would be kind to each other And that's all it takes. That's what it's going to take. You know, when we grew up, we were told if you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all. Mm -hmm. Do unto other people as you would have them do unto you. If we just followed those two things, we would make an impact, we would make a change.
1: That's beautiful.
0: This is Newcastle's first storytellers. Always was, always will be. Newcastle Libraries has an inspiring array of e-learning and programs for you to be a part of. To access them, visit Newcastle Libraries website or app.
1: Now that's all my questions. I do have another one, yep. if you don't mind. No and it's um it's around this year's Nadoc theme. Mm-hmm. Always was, always will be. Did you want to touch on what that means to you?
2: Thank you. That in I remember when I first went to uni, it was there was a big poster an old aboriginal man and then inside that had the young aboriginal man and the words was always was always will be and it hit me you know i just loved it because now i was learning about culture and all of this stuff was new to me and it was the passion in my heart I was just like a sponge and I was just taking it in you know the more water you put in the sponge the more it holds and uh, yeah I found out that my culture and history was so rich and there was so much to be proud of so for me always was always will be it seems like the older we get the more Aboriginal we get you know um, having dreams and visions and a lot of the older people would say their ancestors come and they can see them dancing before them or when I was in hospital there was a man and he said last night that old man come sat at the end of my bed he saw someone and he knew his time was up I've seen them looking out the window and they'd say they're out there they're dancing they're doing a clay pan dance and I'd look at the window when I couldn't see nothing but they could see it so the older we get We have more experiences. I have things that I probably can't share with the church because they wouldn't believe me. Mm. But nobody can question your experience or your dream. Um, So, you know, it's a spiritual journey. And I love this poem by Kath Walker. You know, even the government took our Aboriginal names off our elders and gave them white names. And then in 88 you know Australia's bicentenary she took back her tribal name Ujuru of Nunakul and she has a book called My People and a lot of poetry she was an activist an actor she was a school teacher and a respected elder and so one of her poems is and to me that reflects always was always will be so The poem is called The Past because, you know, when people say, Oh, you know, get over it, that was in the past, (laughs) you know, but no. That's right. All of those apologies are ripple effect to this day. Yeah. And so the poem says, Let no one say the past is dead. The past is all around us and within us. Haunted by tribal memories, I know this little now, this accidental present is not the all of me whose long making is so much of the past. Tonight as I sit here in suburbia in easy chair beside electric heater, I'm warmed by the glow. I'm away in the forest, sitting on the ground with my own people. No walls about me, the stars over me. The tall surrounding trees that sway in the breeze making their own music. Soft cries of the night coming to us, there where we are all one with all old nature's lives, known and unknown, in scenes where we belong but have since forsaken. Deep chair and electric heater are but since yesterday but a thousand thousand campfires are in my blood let none tell me the past is dead for now is so small a part of time so small a part of all the races that has molded me
1: thank you auntie that's you're just so incredible and <laughs> i have shivers thank yeah. you so much
2: thank you my pleasure thank you for listening brothers and sisters. Thanks for
0: listening to Newcastle's First Storytellers. Always was, always will be. If you enjoyed our story, be sure to rate and review us wherever you listen. This has been a Newcastle Library's Real Production.